Hello everyone, my name's Tom and you're listening to the first episode of my new podcast called A Chat About History. This podcast series will cover any historical topic that interests me from ancient Greece up until the 21st century and everything in between and often links between the ancient history I'm interested in and also the 21st century history and 20th century history that fascinates me as well. So this first episode is on the Thucydides trap and in particular its ancient context and hopefully we'll build on this in the future episodes in a little series to start the podcast off and look into all aspects of the Thucydides trap. So I think the first question is what is the Thucydides trap? It's a theory defining international relations by Graham Allison, uh, who initially introduced the idea in 2012, and it's based on ancient, the ancient Greek historian Thucydides' philosophy that war between Sparta and Athens was caused by, and I quote, it was the rise of Athens and the fear that this instilled in Sparta that made war inevitable. So this theory obviously goes back to ancient Greek times, and Allison uses this statement from Thucydides to define international relations ever since. So this particular episode, as I mentioned earlier, is planning to look at the specific ancient context of this quote and the relationship between Athens and Sparta, and then subsequent episodes will look at how that has been extrapolated by Allison to define international relations, and most in particular the relationship right now between China and America. And Allison's main argument is that over 500 years there have been 16 cases that were similar to that of Athens and Sparta in the 5th century BC, and 12 of those 16 led to a conflict between the two states, and that China and America need to learn from these lessons to avoid conflict in the modern world. So my analysis will be of the original context. So first we should probably look at Thucydides and who he was. So Thucydides was an ancient historian, statesman, general for Athens in the 5th century BC. So he was exiled and wrote a lot of his histories whilst in exile. But the profession of historian wasn't particularly defined. Any uh, ancient Greeks would have their fingers in a lot of occupational pies. So he was also a general and fought in the Peloponnesian War against Sparta and was defeated by a Spartan general called Brasidas. But his Athenian uh, allegiance leads his histories naturally have a pro-Athenian agenda. However, he's often perceived by modern historians and students of history as a very reliable source due to his rational explanations for things, as well as often what's often perceived as accuracy in his accounts, especially in comparison to other ancient authors. I'm more sceptical of Thucydides, and I think he's often given a free pass by historians, but um, that will come through as we do the podcast. So if we now get to the actual history itself, rather than Thucydides as a man, the I'll just repeat the phrase again so we can really understand what the Thucydides trap is. It was the rise of Athens 
and the fear that this instilled in Sparta that made war inevitable. So that can be fundamentally broken down into three different claims Thucydides is making. First of all, that war was inevitable between Sparta and Athens. Also, that this was due to the, the Athens' rising power. And finally, that Sparta was afraid of Athens' increasing power. So a key historian, a modern-day historian on the Peloponnesian War is Kagan, who, to, uh, I think, epitomise the criticisms of Thucydides and Alison's use of Thucydides without proper recognition of his context, Kagan disagrees with every aspect of Thucydides' claim, sorry, claiming Sparta were not fearful, Athens wasn't increasing in power, and war was not inevitable. I'm less critical of Thucydides as Kagan, or at least of this concept, sorry, in that I believe I would agree that war is not inevitable and Sparta were not fearful. However, I do believe Athens was increasing in power during this time. So the context for Athens and Sparta is that Sparta had been the dominant power in the Peloponnese and Athens was the rising power, which I believe was due to them pursuing a strongly imperialist policy following the establishment of the Delian League or to defeat the Persians and the continuation of this beyond Persian defeat as the treasury was moved to Athens in 454 BC um, and Athens subdued a lot of their allies who tried to lead the league even after the Persians had been defeated. So, for example, the last recorded battle of the Delian League, which was led by Athens with the Persians, was the Battle of River Eurybodon. Dating is uncertain, but it's between 469 and 466 BC. However, Naxos revolted in what is almost certainly... When, sorry, which was... They almost certainly revolted after this battle, yet Athens subdued them, showing how they were forcing allies to remain in the League. So where does conflict between Sparta and Athens begin and end? So we're just picking up after the end of the First Peloponnesian War, uh, which ended with the Thirty Years' Peace in 445 BC, before the Second Peloponnesian War that starts in 431 BC. So we'll be dealing with that period in between the wars and looking at the cause of the Second Peloponnesian War, also known as the Arcadamian War, or just referred to as the Peloponnesian War. So, let's deal with the first part of Thucydides' claim. That is that Athens were rising in power. So there's some evidence for this being true. I believe very convincing evidence. Kagan takes a different view and he perceives the, there's evidence to say that actually Athens was looking for Panhellenic unity. Again, I'm sceptical of this. So let's start off with Kagan's evidence for why Athens was not rising in power and was just looking for peaceful unity. And you've heard me mention why I think Athens was in developing an imperialist policy in brief earlier, whereas Kagan puts specific light on different events. For example, in uh, 448, there was a, a Pan-Hellenic conference called by Pericles, and Pericles was the leading statesman in Athens up until the start of the Peloponnesian War, where he succumbs to the plague in Athens. Uh, so Pericles calls this conference with the aims of rebuilding the temples in Attica following the defeat. Sorry, not the def yeah, following the defeat of the Persian Empire, who had ransacked 
a lot of the Attican territory, which is the region in which Athens is located, and also for, and I quote Plutarch, freedom of the seas. So Kagan sees this as a sincere gesture of Pericles' attempts at peace within Greece, and the Peloponnesians did not attend at this time, which Kagan sees as them rejecting Pericles suing for, well not suing for peace, sorry, trying to create a peaceful environment within ancient Greece. I'm more sceptical. I think this looks a lot more like a propaganda stunt for uh, Pericles in an attempt to justify his imperial agenda, which was to expand Athens' naval supremacy, thus the freedom of the seas, um, and also to receive funding to rebuild their own temples. And another aspect of Pericles' quote-unquote peaceful policy, which Cagan really buys into, is uh, the development of a colony at Thuriae in Italy. So this was a pan-Hellenic colony again, which was settled by the majority of the largest section of the population were Peloponnesians, so that is the region in which Sparta is encompassed, as Sparta was head of the Peloponnesian League. However, the greatest contributor as a single polis was Athens. So this is quite a multicultural cosmopolitan colony settled in Italy. However, the greatest source and the most prominent source for this colony was Diodorus Siculus, who, again, I think there is a general scholarly opinion that he is somewhat unreliable, to say the least. Uh, one example of his lack of uh, reliability is he claims Archidamus, who is a Spartan king, who in fact leads the campaign that starts the Second Peloponnesian War, the one we're discussing. Uh, Diodorus claims Archidamus dies, and then after he is dead, leads the campaign against Athens. So there's some chronological chronological um, inconsistencies there in his account, I think it's fair to say, <laughs> to say the least. So this, this is, uh, again, evidence that Kagan uses, but I see as relatively unreliable in its uh, validity in supporting the fact that Pericles was pursuing a peaceful policy in ancient Greece. I'll now look at the main flashpoints in Greek relations during this time, and also bring in a third player that I think is neglected by Alison's Thucydides trap, and that is the city-state of Corinth. So, if we look at one of the first flashpoints, that is the uh, events surrounding Corsaira, which was a neutral state, a neutral police uh, in Greece near modern-day Corfu. So this was a police that was, yes, it was neutral, and based on the terms of the Thirty Years' Peace in 445 BC, uh, it could join either side of the alliance. However, it's also a Corinthian colony, so it stems back to Corinthian roots. This, the Corsaira and Corinth end up going, getting into conflict, and Corsaira appeals to Athens for help. Athens, after much debate, agrees to aid Corsaira against Corinth, sending troops in a quote-unquote defensive alliance in 433 BC to help Corsaira defeat Corinth at the Battle of Civita. So here we can immediately see Athens, so you, what you could argue would be meddling or defending its interests as the 
Peloponnesian League taking the fleet of Corsara would have significantly improved their chances in naval engagements if Sparta and Athens would go to war. So in that sense, you could see this as Athens defending their interests or meddling beyond their due in events that were very much outside of their, um, what, you know, what, what would be considered their interests if they were merely looking for Panhellenic unity. So equally following this, Athens demands that Potidaea remove their walls. So Potidaea is a Athenian colony, so Athens, under the terms of the Thirty Years' Peace, have the right to demand Potidaea remove their walls. Corinth, however, have strong ties with Potidaea, and Potidaea is governed by Corinthian magistrates, and it's a Corinthian colony. Now, Corinth says, well, this is one of our colonies, we've got the right to to meddle here. However, they can't break the truce. They send 2,000 volunteers rather than an official army to stop Athens tearing down their walls, which again could be seen as Athens unfairly treating Potidaea. However, this was their right and Corinth getting involved. So here in both these cases we can see real conflict between Corinth and Athens rather than that of Sparta and Athens, which is not really incorporated into Alison's Thucydides trap thesis at all. And the final flashpoint within this period that we will take a look at today is the Megarian Decree. So this is perceived again by Kagan as a deterrent, which was Pericles' policy to stop Peloponnesian allies, uh, so allies of Sparta, uh, attacking the interests of Athens. However, this I see the Megarian Decree as a direct attack on the interests of Megara, which it was, and indirectly an attack against Sparta. As Sparta cannot concede against Athens and let them treat Megara as they wish, or they will lose the respect of their allies and their alliance will become even more fragile than it already is with the conflicting relationship between Sparta and Corinth as both major powers within a Peloponnesian alliance under the dominance of Sparta. So in that sense, the Megarian decree is almost tokenistic, yet also means a lot in that it's the it, it's, it's the eventual trigger of conflict between both Athens and Sparta when in and of itself it doesn't seem like too much of a big deal. So I hope here I've briefly outlined how Athens was rising in power and also had a lot of conflict with Corinth rather than specifically with Sparta and in that sense there are, this is, cannot be seen as a bipolar relationship but a multipolar one with lots of different polis getting involved in the scene of international relations. And Athens was trying to increase its power to some extent, uh, but wasn't pursuing necessarily specifically anti-Spartan policy the whole time, but it was trying to increase its power within ancient Greece. So now let's have a look at the second aspect of Thucydides' claim, and that is that Sparta were fearful. So this is a key element of Thucydides' more general narrative, is that Sparta's a fearful polis, um, entirely into lots of insular insecurities within the Spartan system that I'll touch on later. But in terms of international relations incidents which expose Sparta as fearful in Thucydides' eyes, you could look at the, uh, the debate at Sparta, which is one key Key area in which Thucydides touched upon. 
and that is Archidamus, who is the Spartan king, uh, approaches the situation with Athens as one where Sparta should pursue a policy of peace and is opposed by Stenelides, who is an ephor at Sparta, who pushes for a policy of war. So again, this could be seen as Archidamus pushing for, for peace and being fearful of Athens. However, I see it as a cautious approach and one where we must see Sparta as more nuanced than merely pro-war or pro-peace. And in fact, it's divided into what could be considered hawk and dove parties, like many modern states have been seen perceived to be. And in that sense, Sparta was actually just trying to avoid war rather than being fearful. So equally in the Samian revolt, Sparta don't interfere. And this could be attributed to Corinth intervening. However, the the information, as always, with ancient Greece is unclear. But it, again, is probably emblematic of how Sparta was divided into hawks and doves and requires more nuance than merely being perceived as an aggressive warlike state or one that would was petrified of Athenian power and had a knee-jerk reaction of going to war. So Archidamus, following the debate at Sparta in 432 BC, where Spartans vote to go to war, in a weird voting system recounted by Thucydides um, that I won't get into. But either way, Thucydides wasn't there. And to quote him, Athenians were there on other business. However, this does seem a bit far-fetched to me that they happened to be there and were allowed to listen to this debate. So following this debate at Sparta, the Spartans have agreed to go to war. However, they submit to arbitration with Athens three times. Again, you could see this as them being fearful. I see it as just a wish to not go to war. This, this arbitration is rejected by Athens at least three times, suggesting Athens were the ones trying to instigate a war, or at least not prepared to be perceived as weak at all. Sparta eventually only attacks in 431 BC after their allies the Thebans have already attacked Athens, again demonstrating how Sparta did not rush into war. So here, I hopefully, again, I've shown that Sparta really needs to be perceived not as fearful but as a state that didn't particularly want to go to war and was fine with the current status quo within Greece and their situation in the Peloponnese, where they often don't like to interfere outside of it to a great degree. A lot of people would attribute this to insular problems, such as the Helots. I think the interaction between the Helots and Spartiates is often coloured by the Spartan mirage of Thucydides, and actually Sparta was a lot more secure in terms of its insular situation than people would believe and shouldn't really be perceived as governed by fear of the helots. But again, that's a very big issue that I don't think we have time for in the, today's podcast. Finally, we will look at the last bit of Thucydides' claim, and that is that war was inevitable. So the key claims about war being inevitable is the Corsairian delegates during the Corsair incident that I previously mentioned in Athens, who directly state war is inevitable. <laughs> putting it putting it bluntly in Thucydides' words, uh, sorry, putting it bluntly, uh, Thucydides writes it very bluntly there. However, and then the sorry about that, and then the Athenian uh, delegation within Athens, the Athenians there talking to the Corsairian delegation say that they agree 
and that yes, war will probably probably happen between us and Sparta. However, again, according to me, this is very much sounds like an account of hindsight by Thucydides, who could have been there. However, he also seems to admit in his own work that his speeches are to some extent falsified, as he writes it's what they ought to have said rather than what actually was said. So in that sense, the writing that war is inevitable seems to me more like a correction of hindsight by Thucydides rather than the reality of the situation within ancient Greece. Pointing out the historiographical problems with war, with the claim that war is inevitable and primarily from Thucydides' judgment. So I'll wrap this all up now uh, with my conclusions on the original context in the ancient world of the Thucydides trap, which is, as I hope you've worked out, that it is very inaccurate and should not be used to define international relations for the rest of time, not even, in fact, for its original case between Sparta and Athens, in that Sparta were not afraid and war was not inevitable, and although Athens was rising in power, this was not enough in itself to cause war. And in that sense, Allison's model has a few major flaws in that ancient Greece, as we can say also about the modern world, is not bipolar. It is not simply a relation between two states and two states govern the world. It is a multipolar world, as ancient Greece was multipolar, as we saw through the interaction of Corinth. And the modern world has many other international players other than America and China. I've managed to go through pretty much all of this podcast without even properly mentioning the ex ex external threat of Persia on the relations between Sparta and Athens after their in the Persian invasions. So in that sense, this world is even more multipolar than I have give, met across in this podcast. Due to this, Allison's theory is a gross oversimplification of international relations. And Thucydides really is not criticised enough by ancient historians, which has led to his acceptance by Allison to define international relations for states throughout history. I hope this podcast has been interesting. I hope it has possibly made you reevaluate your opinions on the ancient Greece world and maybe on Thucydides himself as well. But most of all, I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. And if you've got any comments or things you'd like me to do next or like me to improve upon in giving my podcast, then please let me know. But apart from that, I hope you've all enjoyed and have a good day.